The words that I'd like to direct your attention to this afternoon are found in the book of Mark. We'll be looking at Mark chapter 10, back finishing up chapter 10, as we examine verses 46 through 52. So please turn in your Bibles to Mark 6, verses 46 to 52. Then they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho... With his disciples and a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him here. So they called the blind man, saying to him, take courage, stand up, he's calling for you. And answering him, Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. Let's pray. Lord, again, we beseech you for grace, especially now as we look at your word and as I seek to proclaim it to my brothers and sisters here. Give us grace to understand and give me grace to make your word clear. Father, if there's anyone here who does not yet know you, that you would help them to see that, to recognize that, and then to also understand what they must do to be reconciled to you. Help me to make that clear. Help us to know what it is that you're calling us to do as your creation, And as your people whom you've set apart for yourself to be your servants. We ask this in your name. Amen. There are lots of different ways to teach people things. But arguably the best method of teaching is probably by example. I think most of us would recognize that. And And this is really why Jesus has spent three years instructing his disciples and what it means to follow him. And this is why Paul told Titus to invest his life in instructing older men and older women to disciple younger men and younger women. That's why Peter tells uh, the elders to be examples to the flock. That's why Paul also tells Timothy and Titus to be examples. And also why he tells the Corinthians and the Thessalonians and the Philippians to follow his example. He says, follow me as I follow Christ. So this, this teaching method by example is one that we see commanded and as well as illustrated throughout the scripture. Because the Lord knows us. He's put us together. He understands that it's not simply by being instructed like in a classroom setting 
or just by somebody talking to you that we learn. But again, one of the best ways to really learn something is by example. Just, in fact, think of your own experience and, and the, the impact that your parents have had upon you. And in fact, just ask your spouse. She probably sees the impact or he probably sees the impact that your parents have had on you just in the way you live. Or think back on coaches or teachers, pastors, friends. Most of us are probably more impacted by people's example than we actually were by just simple classroom instruction. And that's why biography also can be so helpful. As it provides examples to us of how to both do things and also what not to do. And in fact, this, the scripture presents people as examples as well. And both good and bad to follow. We see Paul speaking negatively of the Israelites in uh, Corinthians chapter 1, or sorry, chapter 10, verse 6, when he says, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. In other words, look back at the Old Testament and how the um, Israelites responded to God's grace in redeeming them as they grumbled and complained in the wilderness, forgetting his kindness to them. And recognize we don't want to be like them. We don't want to follow their example. And I personally have been deeply impacted by the examples of others. And I think uh, my wife is um, one of the supreme examples of what it means to live a life of service. I mean, her whole mentality is one of service. I've learned the importance of thinking clearly and precisely by Chris Merkel who's been with us for years. The, how to have diligence in everything that you do, in all of work from my, one of my professors, my Hebrew professor, Dr. Barrett. I've, I've learned what it looks like to have fortitude in ministry uh, by one of the pastors I served under named John Smith, actually James Hawkins' uncle. And I've been just as shaped by many negative examples. And I'm not going to mention any names, so that wouldn't be appropriate. But I think the same is true of you. You've had both good examples and bad examples. And the Bible understands that's often how we're instructed. And that is, in fact, the purpose of the passage before us. It is provided for us as an example. And really, Bartimaeus is set apart as a positive example in contrast to the disciples. As you recall, we're in this section of Scripture that began back in Mark chapter 8 at the beginning, at the, at the healing of another blind man who was partially healed, who was kind of illustrative, uh, illustrative of the disciples' partial see, seeing. They saw Christ, but they didn't really fully understand who Christ was. And that's why they didn't understand everything that he was trying to explain to them. And they, they struggled to actually follow him. And so really from Mark chapter 8 all the way to the end of Mark chapter 10 has been Jesus not only providing an example of what it looks like to follow him, as on the basis of that statement alone, but also explaining to them, no, you don't get it. No, you don't get it. This is what it looks like, not like this. And finally, this, this section closes with an example of this is what it looks like to have spiritual sight. This is what it looks like 
to follow Jesus. And it's interesting because it's also set in contrast to somebody like the rich young ruler who had everything and yet chose not to follow Christ. And you have this example of a blind beggar presented to us. And and that's what I want you to think through, that the the Bible is just so different than the way we think in the world. If you were just to think about the, the, the most exemplary Christian you know of, it's possible that actually what you're thinking of as exemplary has nothing to do with what the Bible teaches, but just what the rest of the world would think of as exemplary. I think so often the people we admire, we actually don't admire because of their faith and their humility and their, their um, conformity to the Bible, but often it's because they're successful, they're wealthy, they're good-looking, they're famous, they're well-known, and we want those worldly elements. And so often we're, we fool ourselves into thinking we're drawn to what the Bible exemplifies when in fact it's just the world. And, I, and it's a, that's a good reminder as we look at blind Bartimaeus as an example for us to follow. I would summarize this passage this way. Bartimaeus exemplifies everything that Jesus was trying to instruct his disciples on in what it means to have spiritual sight and to follow him. And he exemplifies this in three ways. He's humble, persistent, Obedient, aware, believing, and he's willing to follow. Let's look at verse 46 as it introduces our exemplary Christian to us. It says, Then they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. So we're told that this event takes place as Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And on his way, he must have, he needed to pass through Jericho. And Jericho is, is, as many of you know, is one of the oldest continuously inhabited cities on the planet. Uh, Damascus is, is, is the only, is the one that's just older. So Jericho is like the second oldest continuously inhabited city. And it lies 840 feet below sea level. And the road from Jericho to Jerusalem is about 20 miles. So Jesus is about 20 miles away from his destination. But it's 20 miles nearly straight up. It's a, it's a, it's a climb of 3,500 feet over that 20 miles. And it's here at Jericho where Jesus is encountered by a blind beggar named Bartimaeus. Mark tells us that his name means the son of Timaeus, Bar Timaeus. It's just explained to us. And we're told that he's sitting by the road. And most likely he had situated himself there because that's where people were going to be going. This is near the time of the Passover. We're told here that there's been large crowds along with Christ. And he probably expected as he sat there begging that this is the most likely place where he's going to find somebody who is going to be financially generous to him. To help him get by the next day. Much like people in our own day will stand on street corners. Or on freeway off ramps with signs asking for help. He was doing the same thing. And the first quality we recognize about Bartimaeus is his humility. For not only are we told that 
he is blind, but also that he's a beggar. And when he hears that Jesus is near, he's, he shows his humility in desperately crying out for Jesus to have mercy upon him. When he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And this word mercy means not only to feel compassion, but to, to, sh- to show compassion, to do something. Do something to help me, he's saying. People often describe mercy as not giving to somebody what they deserve. And for instance, Jesus uses this word in, a, in the parable of the unforgiving servant when the ruler tells his unforgiving slave, and you should not... And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy upon you? In that story, this slave chose to not forgive one of his servants who had a minuscule debt to him. Despite the fact that he had just been forgiven this astronomical debt to this ruler over him. He failed to show mercy as he was given mercy. So Bartimaeus recognizes that he needs mercy. He needs help. And he recognizes that Jesus is one who could help him. And this is his cry for mercy is is reminiscent of the father's plea with Jesus back in Mark chapter 9. When he when when he sought the disciples for help and they could they they couldn't do anything to cast him out. So he comes to Jesus, and Jesus says, This can can only be cast out by those who believe. And he says, I believe, help my unbelief. And as you recall, this man's faith is actually set up in contrast to the disciples who failed to cast the demon out because they failed to pray. They didn't look to God. They didn't ask God for assistance. They presumed that because they had been given power before, that they had power within themselves to cast out the demon. But they were powerless. They didn't have faith In God, rather, they had faith in themselves. They didn't recognize their need like Bartimaeus recognizes his need. And this man's humble dependence is also reminiscent of the Syrophoenician woman in Mark chapter 7, who humbly responded to Jesus when he said, Why should we, why should. The children's food be given to dogs. She responded, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She was persistent and she kept asking for help. And like her, this man persistently cries out for Jesus to have mercy upon him. That brings us to the next quality, his persistence. Many were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, son of David. Have mercy upon me. And we're not told whether it's the disciples who are telling him to be quiet. Wouldn't surprise me because that's what they've done before as people have come to Jesus. Like the children. We're not told whether it's people in the crowds. But like the father of the demon-possessed boy and like the Syrophoenician woman, he is so desperate for help, he will not stop until he's able to have an audience with Jesus. Because he's aware that Jesus can actually heal him. 
And just put yourself in his shoes. He's been blind for who knows how long. He's a beggar. So he's destitute. He's, he's, he's in need of great help. And if you knew that there was one who could actually heal you, who could just speak and you would be healed of whatever ailment you're thinking of, what wouldn't you do to come to him? What wouldn't you do in crying out to him? Well, truth be told, we are all in his shoes. We might not be physically blind, but every single one of us is desperate for Christ's mercy. And so the question is, do we realize how desperate our need for Jesus really is? And in fact, it was easier for Bartimaeus to see it because he was a blind beggar. But it's really difficult, as we've seen before in the book of Mark, it's really difficult for us in our day, being rich, wealthy Americans, to understand how desperate we really are for Christ. Because we don't know what the word desperate really means. Even when we've had periods and moments in our life where we've been desperate, it's often been brief and quickly helped. We have family we can cry out to, friends. In fact, we can cry out to the government that cares less about us, but yet they still feel an obligation to care for people who pay taxes or who don't even. We don't... We don't, where we live, with the incomes we make, it's hard for us to really grasp how desperate we are for Christ. But it was easy for Bartimaeus to get it. And it's not just unbelievers who are desperate for Jesus. It's believers as well. In fact, you are as desperate for Christ today as the very day you put your faith in Him. Our need for Jesus doesn't change just after we're saved. In fact, our awareness for our needs for Christ should increase every day we live as we learn more and more of what it actually means to follow Him and what He's called us to. Remember what Jesus said in John 15. In fact, flip in your Bibles to John 15 and read these words along with me. John chapter 15, beginning in verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them. And cast them into the fire and they're burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. You see, just as Jesus ends there in verse 7, believers demonstrate their awareness of their need for Christ, their ongoing awareness of need for Christ, through prayer. Just like Bartimaeus. And in fact, 
A lack of prayer demonstrates an ignorance of the reality of our need. The more you pray, the more you're aware of how much you need God's help. The less you pray, the less aware you are. Plain and simple. And this is why Paul exhorted the Thessalonians to pray without ceasing. And he didn't mean that they could never stop verbally. They had to always be verbally praying. He just mean, he meant always have an attitude of praying for every need that, that, that you're aware of. Always be in communion with God, either in your heart or vocally. Have time set aside for prayer where you can pour out your heart to God in the closet. He speaks about praying in the closet in the, in, um, the Sermon on the Mount. But pray at other times as well. And we need to remember the example of blind Bartimaeus and continue to cry out for Jesus because we continue to have a desperate need for him. In fact, Jesus rebuked the church of Laodicea in the book of Revelation because they actually because that's what they did. They forgot their need for him. I'll just read a brief section of that letter. Revelation three, seventeen to eighteen. Jesus says to this church, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Let's remember that he's speaking to a church. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So spiritual sight is recognizing how desperate we are for Christ. And we'll demonstrate that through prayer. And, if, and we will pray persistently. In fact, Luke 18, 1 through 8, Jesus gives this uh, a parable. It says in verse 18, Luke 18, He told them a parable to the effect... That they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So that's the point of this parable. You ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept, kept coming to him saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man... Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. That's a promise. He will Give justice to them speedily if they cry out to him day and night. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find such faith on the earth? I mean, Jesus knows man. It says that in John 1. He knows that that's what's in the heart of man. That's why he didn't entrust himself to men. Will there be such faith? Will I find people who would, in their desperate need, cry out to me? People who have been saved, who have been born again, who have the Scriptures, who understand the Scriptures, will they continue to pray persistently and not lose heart? 
Well, Bartimaeus, again, is an example of a man with such faith. And that's why when Jesus hears him crying out, it stops him dead in his tracks. Verse 49, and Jesus stopped and said, call him here. And just again, recall Jesus' persistence as he's marching towards Jerusalem. We've illustrated before that there was nothing that was going to keep him in his way. He was walking ahead of the disciples that they might follow and they might see him. And they were in awe of him, amazed at his persistence, his determination. It says in, in the book of Isaiah that he had set his face like flint that he might fully accomplish what the Lord had given him to do. I mean, there was nothing that was going to stop Jesus from going to Jerusalem to fulfill his father's purpose. And yet here he stops. Because there's a man who's crying out to him. Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon me. I mean, you could write a whole theology of prayer just based upon this verse. This is the kind of cry that turns the heart of God. Jesus stops and says, call him. And so they called the blind man saying to him, Take courage. Stand up. He's calling for you. And remarkably, when this, this, this phrase, take courage, is used in Scripture, it's almost always used in reference to prayer. In fact, Psalm 27, 14 says, Wait for the Lord. That is, after you've prayed, wait. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait upon the Lord. Also, Psalm 31, 24. Be strong. And let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. In fact, when Daniel prays in Daniel chapter 9, after reading um, the book of Jeremiah and realizing why the Israelites were in exile and realizing the date was about to happen for them to return to Jerusalem, and he cries out to God and pleads forgiveness on behalf of Israel's sin. and And God sent an angel it says in Daniel 10:19 who says this to him O man greatly loved fear not peace be with you be strong and of good courage that's how god expects us to respond when we pray and that's how he responds that is he responds to our prayer And so Bartimaeus receives the same exhortation as people note that the Lord has heard his cries. Right? The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ear is open to their cry. Psalm 14, 15. And so we see that Bartimaeus again serves as an example of humility and persistence in prayer. But he's also an example of obedience in that he responds immediately to what Jesus tells him to do. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. Jesus said, come, and Bartimaeus came. And unlike the other disciples, particularly James and John and Peter, who saw him upon the mountain, when God had to speak to them and said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. The implication was they weren't listening to him. They had their own idea of what the Messiah should be and do. They weren't listening. 
Bartimaeus, in contrast, and that is the point, in contrast to them, is listening. He immediately listens and obeys. And like Bartimaeus, Christians should respond immediately to Jesus' word. When we teach our children that obedience is to, is, necessitates three things. It needs to be done right away, all the way, and with a happy heart. Obedience is right away, all the way, and with a joyful heart. And anything short of these is disobedience. And we see all three of these things manifested in Bartimaeus' response. He comes right away. And contrast how he comes immediately with those who were seeking to follow him in Luke chapter 9. Flip over there. Luke chapter 9, verse 57. There were a number of people who expressed they wanted to follow Christ. And so Jesus said this to them in Luke 9, 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everyone, everywhere, the kingdom of God. And yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. But Jesus calls out to Bartimaeus, come here, have him come here. And he immediately responds. He comes, um, he comes right away, but he also comes all the way. And this is in contrast to the rich young ruler who also said, what must I do, Rabbi? What must I do to inherit the kingdom of God. And so he tells him, keep the commandments. But when it's exposed that he also must get rid of his wealth because it's an idol to him, the young man is unwilling to do so. There's, he is not willing to go all the way in following Christ. He will follow Christ only as far as his idol will let him. And so he walked away. But unlike the rich young ruler, he doesn't let anything get in his way. Bartimaeus, it says, throws aside his cloak. And, and just recognize, this is possibly the only thing he owned. Again, he was a blind beggar. And in fact, the coke was probably laid out in front of him for people to put money in. And so when he threw off that cloak, set it aside, he's leaving everything behind. Everything. Nothing is going to get in his way of following Christ, unlike the rich young ruler. And he is aware that coming to Jesus is not a burden, but rather coming to Jesus is the only way that that burden can be lifted. And he shows his faith and his obedience, and he's richly rewarded for it. And answering him, Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. And I highlight here Bartimaeus' awareness. He's aware of two things. 
And he demonstrates awareness in what he asks for and also how he addresses Jesus. First, he demonstrates awareness in owning up to his need. He's aware of his need. He makes no pretense in being somebody that he's not. I am blind and I need my sight to be restored. And and notice also that this this is the very same question that Jesus asked in the previous passage with James and John. James and John have a request for Jesus. And he asked, what is it that you want me to do for you? It's the same question he asked. Notice how different their responses are. James and John come to Jesus expecting honor, expecting preferment. They presume they're worthy of honor and distinction. Bartimaeus is simply aware of his need. He's not seeking anything from Christ but healing. And that's the point. This blind man recognizes his need. This blind man perceives his need. He sees his need. The blind man sees his need, unlike James and John. He sees what James and John don't see. That is his own blindness. He doesn't try to politic with Jesus. He doesn't try to pull cards or give a sob story. He just says, I need you. He doesn't try to play expert in the law like the scribes did in chapter 10. He is upfront about his need. I am desperate. I'm needy. In fact, he's very much like children. Make no pretense. They just come to you and say, this is what I need. And in fact, it's children, as you recall, in Mark 9, 30 to 37, who Jesus points to as being examples of those for whom the kingdom is prepared. And the point there, of course, is the same. Because they, they're aware of their need. They're aware that they're desperate. They're aware that they need to be cared for. They're not, they're not presuming that they have any strength, any ability, any good works to rely upon. They just expect their parents to care for them. And like Bartimaeus, he just expects Jesus to help him. So he's aware of his needs. Second of all, Bartimaeus demonstrates awareness in the way he addresses Jesus. He already has addressed him as the son of David. Meaning he he recognized that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised son of David from 2 Samuel. But when he is face to face with him, he calls him Rabboni. Literally, that means my teacher. Excluding other teachers, you, Jesus, are my teacher. What's even more remarkable about that word is, is an extant Jewish um, literature, it's very rarely used in reference to humanity. And practically never as a form of address. But it is frequently used as an address to God in prayer. So what Bartimaeus is doing here is he's tipping his hat to who he believes Jesus really is. That Jesus is in fact God. Blind Bartimaeus sees what the disciples are struggling to see. The disciples again have this kind of vague spiritual sight. They see Jesus but they don't see Jesus. Bartimaeus he sees him. And he demonstrates he sees him by crying out to him. Leaving everything behind. Coming to him. 
and then choosing to believe in him and follow him. John Newton, a man who, like Bartimaeus, went blind and who likewise also saw his need and knew his Savior, famously said these words late in life. Although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. That I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. This is the very same thing that Bartimaeus recognized. Bartimaeus is exemplary in that he's humble, he's persistent, he's obedient, he's aware. Finally, he's, not finally, but fifthly, he's also exemplary in his faith. Verse 52, Jesus said to him, go, your faith has made you well. And it's, it's worth noting that these are the very same words that Jesus used earlier in Mark. Mark chapter 5, verse 34, when he encountered the woman with the 12-year hemorrhage. Or sorry, yes, the woman with the 12-year hemorrhage. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. And if you recall from that message, that word, same word that's used here, be well, is actually the word usually translated to be saved. It's the word sozo, where we get the term soteriology. Typically, this word means to be saved. And I believe that Jesus was declaring to that woman, and also to Bartimaeus, that not only did they receive physical healing, But on account of their faith, they were spiritually healed as well. And just like their father Abraham, they believed God. And on account of their believing God, it was credited to them as righteousness. Genesis 15.6 So because of his faith, Jesus was declaring that Bartimaeus was being accounted as righteous. And this is always what has marked the people of God as being the people of God. The people of God take God at his word, that is, they believe him, but unbelievers fall away. They follow after their own heart, after their own understanding. They, they're wise in their own eyes. They make like the people in the time of the judges, and they rebel, and they, they see the consequences of their sin all over their life. They, they follow what they want to do, but they ignore what God says. But believers believe what it means to be a believer they believe what god says even when what god says seems to contradict their experience and i get that particularly from romans chapter four the people of god believe god even when what god says seems unbelievable let's look at that passage romans chapter four verse 18 This is the example that Paul gives to the Romans as he's explaining the gospel to them. And he says that people are saved by faith. Well, it's logical for somebody to ask, well, what does faith look like? How do I know if I have faith? Well, Paul illustrates faith through the example of Abraham. Look at verse 18. Romans 4.18. In hope against hope, he believed. So that he might become a father of many nations, according to what you, that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which is as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. 
No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. You want to know if your faith is counted to you as righteousness? This is Paul's point. Do you believe God's word? Do you believe God's word when it contradicts what people believe in your work? When it, when, when it contradicts what your professors are telling you, or what your teachers are telling you, what your parents are telling you, what your pastor is telling you? Do you believe God's word regardless of what other people say? Who is the authority in your life? Is it you? I'll believe God's word as long as he doesn't tell me not to have sex with who I want to have sex with. I'll believe God's word as long as he doesn't say things about creation in Genesis chapter 1. Believers demonstrate that they believe God's word regardless of what they think, what others think. Because they believe God. And it's when we believe God, even when it sounds unbelievable, we demonstrate faith. I mean, just to prove that point, what is the mark of an unbeliever in Romans chapter 1? Their foolish minds were darkened. And so God gave them over to the futility of their minds. Man's problem is we don't think rightly. Our problem is we don't think. Or we need our minds to be changed. We need we need to be illuminated. That's our problem. And so if we're struggling to believe what our Creator has told us is true, the problem isn't the Creator, because He's not a liar. The problem is us, that we're rebellious, and we just want God to function accord. We want to be God, and we want God to meet our needs and our wants and our desires, rather than submit to Him. And so if that's you, just recognize that's your condition. If you struggle to believe and obey God's word, it's not because God's lying. It's because you're willing to be deceived. And the only way you can be saved from that is if you cry out for him for mercy like blind Bartimaeus. A true believer believes God's word. And therefore they will believe who Jesus is. And believing who Jesus is, they will be willing to follow him like blind Bartimaeus. Let me just give one as I'm thinking. When I say they believe God's word, that doesn't mean they have to agree with every biblical interpretation that's presented. Because somebody could falsely interpret the Bible. But do they disagree because that's not a fair explanation of the word of God? Or do they disagree because they don't like it? That's the difference. A true believer believes God's word. And they're willing to follow him like Bartimaeus. Immediately, he regained his sight and began following him on the road. See, the evidence of genuine faith is also seen in this willingness to follow Christ. Again, Mark eight thirty four. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And Jesus explains in Mark 10:34 that that means a willingness to be mocked, to be spit upon, to be flogged, and even to die. 
And it's noteworthy that the, that the verb here followed, it's actually in the imperfect tense. And it gives us this picture of a joyful Bartimaeus following Jesus in the crowd that's on his way to Jerusalem. He's not dragging his feet. He is, he is up and he's following and nothing's going to stop him. And I think Bartimaeus is exemplary here as well in that he recognizes that even though following Christ will be hard, it should also be a joyful pursuit. It's not to be done begrudgingly. We've, we know, Galatians 5, that the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy. I mean, joy should be the natural fruit of one who's been born again. Along with peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, etc. But we're also told in the Bible that for the Christian, we should be finding joy even in affliction. 2 Corinthians 7, 4, Paul says, I'm overflowing with joy in all our affliction. Philippians 2, 17 and 18, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Even if I'm suffering, I'm rejoicing. 2 Corinthians 6.10, he describes the, the apostles as sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As have, having nothing and yet possessing all things. I mean, there, this is not begrudging following Christ. This is joyful, even in the midst of affliction. I love the illustration that John Newton gave about this, how incongruous it is for a Christian to grumble as they follow Christ. And he illustrated it this way. He says, suppose a man was going to New York to take possession of a large estate and his carriage should break down a mile before he got to the city, which obliged him to walk the rest of the way. What a fool we should think him if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering out all the remaining mile. My carriage is broken. My carriage is broken. It's incongruous. You're going to receive the most immense inheritance ever. Why would you begrudge a carriage being broken? Who cares about carriages? You got eternal life, Christian. What is any loss when you have Christ? Which is why we should be joyful in our afflictions because we have a Savior who has promised to never leave us or forsake us and who will lead us into His kingdom. So not only are we given examples to follow in Scripture, we're also called to be examples to others. And so even as you consider these six traits of blind Bartimaeus, which do you think you need to grow in? And again, it's, as I ask that question, it's helpful to recall again, as I introduced at the very beginning, Bartimaeus isn't impressive. I mean, if I were to ask you, who do you think the Bible, besides Jesus, highlights as an exemplary follower of Christ? Maybe you would go think Peter or Paul, that would be reasonable. But the very point of Bartimaeus here is to set him aside as a, in contrast to the disciples, of what it looks like to follow Christ. He got it. 
And that might just seem strange to you. Why? Because he's not impressive. And brothers and sisters, you don't have to be impressive to be an exemplary follower of Christ. You just have to be aware of your need for him. And to believe. And to persistently pray and depend upon him. To be willing to follow him. No matter the cost. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would make us such Christians. Lord, that you would continue to show us the folly of all that this world admires and reveres and wars to own. That we would look less and less like the world in all its pomp and vanity and emptiness. And look more and more like you. Even if it means being unimpressive, rejected, even if it means loss and pain, give us eyes to see and ears to hear that we might become like you, Christ. I ask this in your name. Amen.